Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Fred Schenkelberg back to the show. Fred is the host of the Speaking of Reliability podcast and the owner of AscendoReliability.com. We talk about why we podcast, why you need to make friends within the finance department, and how to effectively sell reliability initiatives within your organization. If you haven't yet, check out my website, robsreliability.com, and sign up for the weekly reliability newsletter. Also, I would really appreciate it if you shared the podcast with your colleagues in reliability and maintenance. We love sharing and spreading the word of reliability. Lastly, if there are any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear on the show, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. I really appreciate you guys listening. Thank you very much. Now here's the interview with Fred Schenkelberg. Hey guys, we're back and we got a special guest, one of my favorite guests, Fred Schenkelberg is back. Fred, how are you? Hey, pretty good. Just one of your favorites, that's all. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You have you have amazing guests on your show and you and it's all over the map. Uh, practitioners and technicians and business owners and all kinds of topics. It's fun. I, I love your show. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And I really, you know, for me, it's funny, actually, I was I, I was on a call with my coach the other day, and she mentioned, we were talking a little bit about the podcast, and she mentioned that, you know, she was asking me like a little bit about it, and I was saying like, hey, you know, like I, I really, it's kind of like what I feel like talking about, what I'm thinking about that week, and then what I'll do is I'll schedule a guest. Usually it'll be, you know, a few weeks after that, but it was kind of interesting. It was like, she she mentioned it was a that the show is really about me and it was the first time I really realized that maybe it is but I'm trying to help people with it so I don't know if that's coming through but I hope it is. <laughs> well, it is. It's. I mean, I think the format, the I mean, the interview format in general, and even just a straight discussion type format. And I know you've done a few episodes that it's just you talking about topics. It helps people understand how another person frames a problem or, or approaches a problem or does whatever. And some of your guests have written books and some of your guests are, you know, well-known practitioners. And it's, it's how do they approach stuff? What experience are they bringing to the table? So I, I know in, that your listeners are getting bits and pieces and insights and, and approaches and ways to solve problems and how to think about stuff that, many cases either reinforces what they were already thinking and it's that's a good thing or it's going oh i never thought of it that way and that's really valuable so yeah i think it's making a difference yeah i hope so i mean i really think that like i'll just speak from my personal experience like i've learned a ton from running the show you know from people like yourself like all these guests that i've had on and we've talked about everything i mean like we've talked about health, we've talked about wellness, we've talked about entrepreneurship, blockchain, AI, reliability, like we've spun the board. So it's it's been fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, and it's good. It, I enjoy it. And I agree. It's like the podcast I manage and run. Um, 
I remember when we started speaking of reliability, we thought, oh, we'll have like 20 topics to talk about. We, we might make 50 episodes and we're at 484 episodes recorded and we're planning a special event for our 500th episode. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> it never seemed to. And then we get stuff back from listeners, right? We get comments and feedback and um well, I don't know if I told you, I was at SMRP a year ago, not this recent one, but the one prior, and I'm at lunch in the big uh, trade show hall thing. They had lunch in the back of it, and I'm at a big table, and I'm chatting with the guy sitting next to me, and, and this couple sits down across from us, and, and he looks at me and goes, I know that voice. Do you do podcasts? <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then we talked about the some of the shows he'd listen to and, and stuff like that, but I would have never met him otherwise. Right. So it was pretty cool. We'll, we'll never get recognized in an airport, but if we're at a specific conference, we might get recognized. <laughs> That's right. I did get recognized in an airport once. It was way cool. And um, I was going to a conference. So there's a high density of people like us there. Right. <laughs> um, and so I'm standing at the, at the waiting for the shuttle off to the, the hotel at the airport. And um, this gentleman walks up to me and goes, so what do you think about MTV app? <laughs> and I didn't recognize him. And I looked at him and he smiled and he goes, yeah, I've been following your no MTVF stuff for years. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and he even had a button. I used to give away buttons. I've given away thousands of buttons. And he had one of them. He was wearing a button traveling to the conference. That's easy that to pick cool. out in a crowd. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, that was way cool. So that was fun. But uh, yeah, that was the one time. Oprah hasn't called. I've never been on the local talk radio show, stuff like that. That's why we podcast. That's right. We're we're a niche, a niche audience in a niche market. That's right. Exactly. But, you know, we try to make a difference. And, we, you know, if we are successful, you know, Rob, with your show and, and what we do with Speaking Reliability, um, the folks that are working in reliability related fields or in reliability in general um, can help make better products, can help make better, you know, it reduces waste. You know, if, if only we could measure how much our, our guests and what we advise people have taken away from the shows has made a difference of improved uptime or reduced waste or improved quality of the product or, you know, whatever. It's probably way more staggering of an impact than we realize and so i'll just make it up and say it's really big <laughs> just like how i make up my financial impacts <laughs> yeah 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 it's like a dilbert cartoon but i i sincerely i think that you know if we have an audience and you know 20 people take away an idea and they each make an impact in their organization that saves a hundred thousand dollars it starts to add up Right. And if we continue with the show and they tell other people to come to the, see the show and, and they pick away up something that saves them $50,000 that year, you know, it, it does add up. And I know it happens. I, I've heard stories from people and I've heard tales and success stories and stuff that they, they are, they were able to take this idea and, and make a difference. And um, it's just that we often don't get the details of that. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I even take it more on a granular level. Like I think that a lot of 
the reliability field, it's, it's kind of frustrating and you're trying to make changes and people aren't into changes. And for me, it's like less about the financial benefits to the company and more about like if you're listening and you get a tip from somebody and it makes your life easier, that's really what I care about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. It's, you know, it, we get shows that, you know, it's just a, well, if you, if you have this kind of problem, approach it this way, or here's an idea for you, how to present this information, or here's a, a suggestion of a book to read that has a great RCA type process in it. And you can pick out a few things on that, but you know, our, you and I and our colleagues, we get faced with, you know, Hey, can you set up this fracas system for us? And, and you're like, well, what's a fracas? Oh, wait a second. Rob talked about that on this show and here's the, you know, some references for it. Here's somebody I can call and talk to about it. And, and you're off and running. Whereas if it's just going to the library or, or go to a Google search, it's, it's not as filtered. You don't have a context and how do you select where you go from there? Even in that realm of just giving people some background and knowing the terms and definitions, they, they can get off to solve a problem much easier, much quicker. And I, I, in that in and of itself, even if it just saves somebody 10 minutes, it saves them 10 minutes and that's valuable. Absolutely. And, and yeah, and I mean, if you're listening and you have a story that you use something from this show to make your life easier or to make financial benefits or whatever, definitely send me an email, Project at gmail.com. And then maybe we'll set up a, an opportunity for you to come on the show and share your story because at some point soon, I'm going to be coming up to episode 100 and I need to do something special. <laughs> That's right. Oh, you should give away a coffee mug for that. For a good, you know, <laughs> for I, a I can definitely, I can definitely do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that'd be way cool to get them on your show and see how it made a difference. And um, I'm going to have to steal that idea. That's an awesome idea. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it makes my day. I, I get a, an email or a LinkedIn message uh, probably every week, right? That says, you know, I, I like your show. And then I'd ask them, so what, what about it? And they go, well, it was you, you guys talked about uh, FMEA. Carl and I talked about FMEA or Kirk and I talked about halt testing. And, and I never really thought of it that way, or it made a difference in how I presented. We want to do this different thing. We want to in, introduce halt testing in our organization. And I was able to use the, the the phrasing you guys talked about and how it's beneficial or, you know, what's the purpose of it or whatever. And it gave me the language to use to, to actually make a difference, to introduce a project. Uh, other times I get questions like, so you guys talked about fracas systems. Well, what, how do I understand what part of that to improve? And, and they said... Uh, the, the problem we're having is that we often fix the short-term problem, but we don't follow through and fix the long-term problem, right? <laughs> well, that's an interesting problem, right? Uh, and it goes to the management and the follow-through and, and what's the overall objective. And so it made a couple of episodes uh, to talk about, but it, it was also sent them an answer right back saying, well, here's a few things to look for and you, you really need management support to follow through and fund the long-term part, but you need to make sure it's useful for them to do so, right? You got to show them how it's connected. Just because you fixed this one problem today doesn't mean that you fixed it for all time, right? If you've got a thousand of those types of 
chunks of equipment or components through your factory, add it to the inspection routine, add it to, you know, uh, is it a wear out mechanisms that's going to affect everything? Well, you need to stock up on spares so you're not shut down for lack of parts or, you know, whatever, but take the next step and quantify how valuable it is just because you prevent problems. Um, very few people will actually recognize it because the factory's still running. Well, what good are you? We don't have any breakdowns. <laughs> no. Well, if you don't spell it out and make it visible, you don't get credit for it. So part of like any change management is you got to one paint where you're trying to go and why it's useful. And then when you get there, make sure that it's visible, that this change actually made a difference. And here's the evidence of that difference. And uh, so it, it touched on way more than just doing failure analysis, for example. It goes into the culture and mindset of an organization. And in some cases, how do you change that? And that's always tricky. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things that I think that we do, at least from a sustainability part and even getting started. It's like it's hard to sort of get kicked off on that change process. Yeah, no, I I still remember Warner. He was the maintenance manager in the factory. I was a shift supervisor in. And, um, and he was the chiseled uh, German mechanic looking guy. Uh, he, he, I don't know if he was six foot, but he was, he was movie star persona. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was, you know, broad shoulders and strong and, and little gray streaks in his hair. And, and you know, he, he, he was handsome but he was super skilled he knew what he was doing and, and he really understood his equipment in the and maintained the equipment very very well and something rolled down and i was supposed to talk to the ship and his group was attending it and it's like oh we're going to do uh, total quality management we're going to have quality circles we're going to do this and he just sat there with his arms crossed and looked at me like yeah right <laughs> it's like what what in the world? And I talked to him afterwards. He goes, you know, be, two months ago, before you were here, your previous supervisor said where we're going to do um, uh, some other program. And then another one before that said we're going to do lean. And another one before that said we're going to do Shingo, whatever that was. And he goes, it's just the flavor of the month. You know, if you're serious about it, I'll follow it when it works. But don't bother me in the meantime. <laughs> I got work to do. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you know. That's a good point. If it if the priorities and what we're trying to do and experiment with or, or implement changes every month, there's little to no follow through in any of this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that is a problem. Um, so he, he had a good point, but he, he was just this guy. You know, I immediately respected him and learned over the years I worked there. I, the respect for him grew and grew. But he just said there, like, yeah, right. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> That was a challenge. I, I really see that a lot. Like it's, it's, I see that a lot and I see it like we were even just, I just got off a recording and we were talking about, you know, the value to asset management. We were a little talking to asset management people, but a lot of initiative programs, even in reliability or maintenance or whatever, you know, we're talking about sort of long-term benefits. So benefits that are couple years from now or five years from now. And especially with culture change, like those benefits, yeah, you'll see them along the way, but 
to actually have a sustainable culture that's you know producing reliable like reliable products it's eight to ten years is kind of what they're talking about and Mm -hmm. oftentimes managers are looking for results next quarter and how do you like how do you think like people should balance that i mean my general advice is you have to understand what the organization's priorities are both the written and talked about ones like we're to do profitable but still maintain environmental consciousness and we're doing this and the ops manager translated to we need uh you know operational efficiency and we need certain uptime or you know throughput or whatever the particular overt metrics and metrics are right and and this is what most people miss i think is and for those key decision makers the folks that are controlling what gets funded and supported and what doesn't and it may or may not be the manager, right? It may be a, a key technical contributor, or it may be a, a key person in the program. Um, what's in it for them, right? It's what's good for the customer or what's good for the organization, but what's in it for them? Do they do they want the recognition, right? So if you do a proposal to somebody that wants to be recognized as a leader, let them have the idea. Just feed the idea to them and let them promote it. And so what if they take credit for it and you did all the work, it still gets done, right? And then you become a trusted advisor to help them in their career, right? Other people are looking for strictly what's on their bonus, right? If I maintain 98% uptime uh, or achieve this milestone or get this much throughput or whatever, they get their bonus, right? If they're in it for the money, they will never tell you that, right? This is good for the economy. It's good for this. It's good for that. But if they're strictly in it for the money, um, you got to do that short-term stuff that doesn't destroy their chance for the get their bonus, right? <laughs> and it is a balance, right? And I remember one guy I worked with, this is in a product design team, uh, Ed. Um, I was a, a manufacturing engineer, and, and it was really a lot of my arguments were reliability-related. You know, if it was good for yield, it was good for reliability. And but reliability performance in the field and warranty reduction was much more convincing dollar wise. He wasn't interested in dollar wise. He had a deadline to get his designs done. And I kept walking in saying, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so he's not very happy with me. And I finally asked him and says, well, what do you need? And he says, I don't need problems. I need solutions. And so it's like, well, you this clearance isn't right. And you know, and so what are my options, right? So I started just bringing solutions and options and other ways to think through these problems and, and you know, roll up my sleeves and start working with the layout team or working with the equipment team and finding new ways to, to solve the problem for them. And he liked that. He didn't ever adopt any of my suggestions, but he then approached the problem with, oh, well, here's three ideas. That sparked some other ideas. It's kind of a mini brainstorm, right? He enjoyed problem solving, but he didn't like being presented with problems. And so it was bringing him ideas or suggestions or alternate uh, uh, things to consider. He enjoyed that part and then puzzled out a, a solution for it. And so it was understanding your audience and what is it that drives them. And it can be tangible things like they get a parking space or it can be intangible things that other people consider them, you know, the top of their game kind of thing. And, and it goes all over the map, but it's 
that's the hard part to understand. What is their, it's called the intrinsic motivation for them. What's, what's in it for them is one way to phrase it. And once you crack that code, um, it, it makes making proposals and implementing changes and finding that balance much, much easier, right? Lots and lots of people I've worked with said, yeah, you're right. We need to do this and it's a five-year return and it, we understand the potential for it and everything else. And then they don't fund it. And you're like, well, why? And if it's that quarterly push, right? If it's their bonus at the end of the year um, and this would this investment would detract from their ability to get what's in it for them, whatever it is, um, it's a non-starter. So you, by understanding that and making sure that the the implementation and the investment and so on maintains or doesn't make a huge impact to the short-term objectives, then you got a fighting chance. Still not guaranteed by any means, but you, you at least acknowledge where the barriers really are. And I think that's the key part. Yeah, I, I've seen it a few times in my career and I like it was it was earlier in my career and I didn't really realize it at the time, but I kept coming into this statement that that like all oh, capital capital uh, capital dollars cost us more than operating dollars and that's why we can't buy new equipment. We just have to run old equipment and once it's fully depreciated, it's free even though we're spending maintenance against it all the time. And yeah. Yeah. I I I just was like in a couple of weeks after this one, we're going to have uh, a CFO on the podcast to talk about, you know, what should reliability people understand about finance to help us, you know, make build, build better business cases, make better financial arguments. And I, I was talking to him on Wednesday and <laughs> He, he essentially was like, no, there's really no difference between the, the money. The only real difference is, is if you're talking about, you know, spending like a hundred million or a billion in capital, where if you're spending maintenance, maybe it's a couple million a year. That would be the real only difference. And I, ca I came out of that phone call and I was like, I was right the whole time. It's like the only reason they didn't want to spend capital is because their bonus is tied to capital expenditure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> no, I got it. I'm looking forward to that show. I've, I've said it on my show a number of times is that in your organization, somebody in the finance group is going to be your friend. You've got to make contacts there. And I mean, even if it's just stocking spares uh, and they say, no, you can't have that component because it's too expensive to sit in the storeroom. And, but it's they're only looking at the stocking costs, right? The warehouse costs of these parts. <laughs> and I, even if we have a 10% chance that we're going to need it this year, the downtime to order it, if we don't have it, is going to swamp the stocking cost of this thing. And, and they go, but that's not our measure. That's not our metric. So, okay, I got to go find somebody that understands this at a higher level. <laughs> <laughs> but it's usually somebody in finance that works out the numbers and says, yeah, you're right. No, it's economical for us to have this expensive part on the shelf. And even if we don't use it this year, uh, it makes sense. And they, they can work through in a language that to me is often foreign, but 
it's worth understanding it as much as it is to understand um, the latest techniques or uh, failure analysis uh, tools and equipment or whatever, you need to have the finance piece. So that's brilliant getting the CFO online. Yeah. That's going to be a good show. I I am definitely looking forward to it. And I really think it's something that's valuable to, to the community. I mean, I, I spent a year working as an economist at doing large infrastructure cost benefit analysis, that type of stuff. But I still think there's, there are some aspects more probably on the accounting side, but that it's just like, like how, what are we looking at for the problem? Like, how does that work? And I think it's going to be really insightful for him to break it down for us just so then, you know, we can kind of see what they're looking at, how they look at a problem and what are we, like, what are we missing as reliability people when we come to a CFO to try to get money to do a project? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not good enough usually to say, well, if you give me a million dollars, I'll make it more reliable. <laughs> it, you know, reduce the failure rate by 10% or whatever. It, you got to go to the next step. What does that translate into? How does that go to the bottom line? How does that influence the performance of the plant? How does that free up funds for other things or, or whatever? Um, yeah, I see it in the product reliability world. Oh, I'm going to do this because it'll reduce the failure rate for this component. Okay, so <laughs> what's that? If if other things failing mass that, so that part never has a chance to fail because everything else has already failed, uh, uh, cutting it in half doesn't make any difference. You know, so what? If it's the key component that limits the life of the product and you're cutting it in half, well, let's talk now. Let's, that makes sense. And a common question I ask is, and it's more well-known in factories and asset management. If, if the line goes down, people know generally how many thousands of dollars per hour that costs them or millions of dollars, depending on the plant. Like when an auto line goes down, they know to the dollar, how much that's costing them to the second. Where in product design and product performance, it's often an impact when a line goes down of just, if it's not on the shelf, we don't sell it, we lose sales. It's so nebulous and so far down the line, nobody really much cares about it most of the factory thinks, oh, we're going to do work. We're going to have to work overtime so we get paid more. So why should I fix it now? (laughs) (laughs) So it's in product reliability. uh, It's often when I ask people, it says, well, what's the cost of a product failing? Right. And they'll tell me, well, there's a warranty and we pay, you know, $600,000 a year in warranty bills. All right. Well, that's a gross number and total warranty expense. But how much does it cost per product, per individual unit? If you're, Let's say you're making laptops. How much does it cost when a laptop fails? How much does that cost you as an organization? There's phone calls, there's returns, there might be failure analysis, there might even be redesign. How much does that really cost you? And the simplest estimate, and it's crude, is to take the warranty number right for that product line and divide it by the volume you shipped. So what's the average cost per unit shipped? And the reason I use that instead of what's the actual cost of a failure, which is a fraction of the of the total warranty cost, because they're they're making decisions on cost reduction on individual components. So if we get a better memory chip that's you know a nickel less expensive, we save so much money. But if warranty is like the most expensive component, I'm using air quotes here, right? Um, why aren't you cost reducing that? 
so and and when somebody realizes like this laptop example at the time it was a the warranty cost per unit shipped was a hundred dollars expected value right so every laptop that went out had a burden of about a hundred dollars in warranty expense now not every laptop failed and cost a hundred dollars but when the laptop failed it cost us a couple thousand dollars to deal with so that it averaged out to be about a hundred dollars per component the cpu on the ship was eighty dollars and every other component was less expensive and so the warranty was the most expensive component in that product yet nobody was working on that there were <laughs> dozens and dozens of engineers cost reducing reducing the reliability of individual components because they were trying to get the bill of material costs down right so they were focused on bill of material costs but they didn't include warranty in the bill of material and so by putting it into the same units it became blatantly visible and obvious that oh we need to actually reduce the warranty like pay more for components and design a product that actually works and instead of a hundred dollars burden per unit shipped it goes down to forty dollars or sixty dollars or whatever and that's way better than saving a nickel per component and um, so using arguments like that only became available when you start talking to the finance folks yeah oh i, I love it and, and to me you know it, it just makes a lot of sense like i throughout my whole career i've always thought that we like we miss that type of analysis you know we miss that type of analysis and and like i you know i come from those large companies that all know what their downtime cost is albeit I've had arguments over years about what the downtime cost was, but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it's like, you have to understand that stuff because for some of the equipment, like, like there is this perception I've, I've heard that reliability engineers, like what your job is, is to make sure that there's no failures ever. And, that's just blatantly false, right? And it, and it's yeah. it comes back to that sort of RCM type mentality where if you have a light bulb in the plant and it goes out and nothing happens, you just go and change the light bulb. Like that is an acceptable run to failure decision. You know, you're not going to over-design it. You're not going to have redundant lights. Now, maybe if it's a confined space and, you know, you need a light because if it if it doesn't then someone could die like yeah absolutely but yeah you, you actually have to bring it back to like what does it cost you how what's the value of this and then what's the ROI like if you're going to work on that CPU that costs $80 to make it more reliable like if you can make that more reliable for $20 and take your warranty down from 100 to 50 you're making 30 bucks a unit that's a good decision right, right. It, it, the hard part goes, and we talked about this earlier, is that, well, that $30 doesn't show up for the metric of bill of materials, right? It shows up in your overall profitability. But if your ops team is only focused on bill of materials, um, they don't get the benefit of that, right? Somebody else gets the benefit of that. And so you really got to track, if you're going to do improvements in reliability, who gets the benefit of that? And it might not be the people you're asking for the funding for, right? It's where's the, if you improve throughput on a line, who benefits, right? Do you even need that capacity, right? If just because you can, doesn't mean you should, 
is where's the where's that benefit actually go? Yeah, that's a great point because you have, you have to really be careful. Like when you talk to supply chain people, typically they're they're out there to reduce the cost of purchasing something. That do, they don't care about the life cycle value of that product. They don't really care about you know whether it's better or not for the 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 outcome of the company. They're bonused off of can I take this thing that's a hundred dollars and buy it for ninety, right? So those KPIs, those metrics that people are being evaluated on, you have to be very careful because they're they're not going to budge from those things. It's some people. I don't think it's true for everybody. There are people that actually say, you know, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's going to hurt my bonus. Yet it doesn't it doesn't make sense for the overall organization. I don't get a bonus if we don't make money as a company, right? So they they think I call it the big hat thinking, right? They're they're looking at the bigger picture. It's there are people like that out there, and, and oftentimes they become champions for these longer term kind of programs and, and ideas. Uh, but in bonuses is the most obvious way people motivate themselves but sometimes it has nothing to do with money or prestige it's more about they get acknowledged for helping make a change you just get recognized um and it doesn't really cost anybody anything to do that but they became perceived as a change agent or they perceived as as making a difference in an organization and that's that's as valuable as a bonus to some people um i'm racking my brain i'm trying to think of i heard this there was a, a PhD student, or I think she actually got, had just gotten her PhD, but her, her thesis was on why do people volunteer? And it was for um, a professional society that she was involved in. And it was where I saw this presentation. She said there's six different reasons people volunteer. And some of it is for, you know, to learn something. Some of it's for networking. Some of it's for personal satisfaction. Some, you know, and she went down these six different reasons and it translated directly to this change management. If you're making a proposal, what's motivating that person to volunteer to support you? Because they've got plenty of other offers on the table. And if yours is aligned with what's in their interest, what they're at, what they want to do, you have a much better chance of being successful. Do you think like people are risk averse to some of these changes? Like I've seen it a few times where people will somewhat support you, but then when you go to the point where you're like, I need you to sign your name on it, they're they're sort of unwilling to go against what's the established norm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, there's a, it's funny. You can talk to individuals, you put them together in a group, and you get a completely different entity exists there, right? Um, for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, other people will say, oh, yeah, reliability is number one. We got to do that. That's important. Blah, 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 right? And they'll say all the right things until it comes down to funding it or hiring the next person or getting that sensor you need or whatever. And like, oh, no, you can do better without that, you know, or whatever. And they don't take the action they don't sign their name up to it that happens all the time because nobody it's it's a phenomenon that i've seen in lots of people is they don't really don't want to say no to you right people generally want to be supportive and encouraging and all those other good things and you know we're working together and all that stuff but realize that from their point of view is they've got a hundred proposals on their desk and which one's going to give them the best re- re- roi right and for all not just 
money-wise, profitability, but what's what's the best deal for them? What's what's more aligned with what they they envision what needs to happen? And they've got options. You you're bringing one of many. You're in way too many organizations. It's a cutthroat competitive environment for the limited funds for investments for improvements or for whatever and so it's you got to understand the playing field i think is a big part of that where why people don't sign and fund something at the end of the day um it's very very similar to the purchasing um decision right we go out and we get three vendors and we get three bids and we compare this on a matrix and everything else and then it's Almost always, in my experience, it comes down to who had the better lunch or who, who goes to the same church or, <laughs> who, you, know, you know, this guy was went to the same school I did. So let's fund it. Let's buy that one. A lot of decisions are pretty darn subjective or, or um, yeah, subjective. And it's a lot of intangibles go into it. But I think it's it goes back to that you, you need to understand what's important to the person is, is it the networking part and the collegiality and these people are going to stand behind their product and it builds trust is and in the sales process trust is a huge part of the decision process if you trust somebody you'll buy it whereas if you don't trust them it's spam you can hang up right <laughs> you delete it and it, I mean, exaggerating there a little bit, but if you've got three reputable vendors bringing you very similar solutions to a problem, which one do you go with? And, and that's been studied and studied. And it's the same when we're doing internal proposals. It, and part of my business, and it, as a consultant sometimes, is I go to an organization and they lay out the problem. And I say, well, you guys already know the solution for this. Why, why am I here? And I had one director of quality says, well, they're tired of listening to me. They need somebody from far away to tell them what I've already been telling them and they'll believe you. <laughs> right. So I'm paying you to come out here for two days, you know, uh, come up with some collusion, conclusions and then make some recommendations. And if they line up with what I'm telling them, they'll believe it. <laughs> I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that numerous times. And it's really just it's funny because you show up and the the, whoever hired you lists out all the problems that they have and the solution to those problems. And then it's like, okay, we'll walk you around the plant now, but you're pretty much done. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, the one I, I, I'm thinking of is, was a, a aircraft manufacturer. And, um, and he, he said, no, I want you to actually, I said, he said, I, here's the problems. I already made a presentation on this. And I said, well, why don't you show me that? And we'll go play golf. And he goes, no, no, no. I want to see what you come up with. And this is a test. And so I spent a couple of days and interviewed a bunch of people, dug into a bunch of data, understood more deeply their problems and where the issues were. And I came up with, I think, five recommendations. And four of them matched his write-off. He had one that I didn't have, and I had one he didn't have. So he was happy. And then we went and had lunch. <laughs> it was really cool. It was it was. Uh, in the lunchroom, they had these images of the, uh, uh, I don't know, early 50s of their early aircraft they were designing. And they had designed their first over-wing aircraft or over-fuselage. The wing was over the top instead of on the bottom. And one of the tests they did, they, they would take sandbags and put them on the tip of the wing to see when the wing would break, how much deflection it would go before it fractured. And... 
it passed all of their criteria. And so they took a picture of it with a bunch of employees standing on the wing, on top of the wing on this aircraft. And I said, you know, it's funny, Lawrence, the, the guy in the center has a suit on and the two people next to him are dressed like office wear and the technicians or, and the dungarees are way out on the wingtips. Is that staged that way? <laughs> <You know? laughs> he goes, you know, I've walked past this for 10 years and I've never noticed that. <laughs> goes, yeah, if, if your CEO really trusted his product and his team, he'd be on the wingtip, not in the center. So That's right. That never happens. <laughs> no. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. So, but it was very much the, um, it was the phenomena of somebody from far away with a different set of experience. And, and there is some value. I agree to there's value in an organization. They have a third, another pair of eyes look at something, see something unique. But even when I tell them exactly what they already know, it's believable for whatever reason. And I've even done that. I make my presentation and you know, George here came up with this idea two years ago, and you could have saved four hundred thousand dollars if you had implemented it then. <laughs> They're looking at me like, "Okay, <laughs> you can go now." <laughs> you you charge four hundred thousand, Fred? I gotta up my rate. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was how much they could have saved if they would have implemented this thing earlier. It's like, what's wrong with you people? You know, listen to your. You got good people here. Listen to them. And sometimes I think I'm a marriage counselor. Yeah in that regard but it, it it's part of the process it's um we we face all kinds of difficult problems whether it's making proposals or evaluating options or whatever and just sometimes having that other pair of eyes helps and sometimes it's uh framing the problem and understanding the complexities of it like in your your economic modeling type stuff it's it's what is the true impact of this that's Sometimes it just takes another, another framing, another set of eyes on it, another way to look through it and uh, to make it, it much more clear. In day-to-day -day operations, though, you just got to understand what's in it for them. I, and that It's not trivial, but it, it sure helps. Yeah, no, I know. I 100% agree. And, and, and it's really, yeah, like it's understanding what, what values do they have so it's kind of a it's kind of a hard question to answer, but maybe do you have any like tips on how someone could go out there and kind of understand what the I don't know if it's incentives, but how the the utility function for the nerd and out economists out there, how do we understand the other person's utility function and how do we kind of cater to that? Um, well, one is realize that it's there's there's overt or explicit objectives right if you go talk to your ops manager and they say well i want throughput i want you know lower scrap rate i want you know the ability to do xyz and these are in my measures and metrics and kpis these are my expressed objectives right and those are valid they are something that we're making decisions on and it's tracking and it's and it's explicit you know everybody should know what those are and those are the easy ones right the other part is is often only really found out by what actions they actually take, right? If you've got a couple of options and they both meet the the explicit requirements just fine, you're still going to pick something. Which one would you pick? And 
most people will not tell you that, oh, that one gets my bonus higher, right? Some will. I've had people tell me that. I do this one because it helps me more. I cost reduce this, I get my bonus, right? Um, but other people, it's by what, what they... It's more subtle, obviously, because they're not going to tell you overtly, well, this one makes me feel better. This one makes me feel like I've contributed to the organization in a meaningful way. It's it's very personal. Others will say, well, it's for my pocketbook. And, and they may not ever admit to doing that, yet it's driving their conscious decisions or unconscious decisions. So it's, it's really their track record. It's talk to folks that have seen him come up against similar decisions. What drives them? What questions do they ask, right? Um, if somebody, if you go up to somebody with a presentation and it's got your name all over it and they say, well, how about we put my name on that and it, it'll carry more weight, right? Well, they want the recognition. That's fine, right? If you get the program through and you make the change, they get the credit. That's okay, right? It's not a big deal. It still gets done. Um, but that's, if they're asking that, then it's a key or a clue that they want the recognition, right? Um, they want to build their resume. They want the parking spot. They want the accolades in front of the room. Whatever that is, that could be so personal to them, but that's what gets them up in the morning. That's why they come to work, right? Versus somebody that's really just looking for the promotion in the corner office and career building and and uh, the bonuses or take-home pay or whatever. And then there's people that are in it for, it's got to be right for the customer. It's got to be good for our culture. And they really do have a long-term uh, uh, vision for the organization. Well, how does doing this improve this larger program I'm working on, right? How does this fit into this larger structure I'm, I'm working toward? So if they're really after workplace culture and, and we have a team and everybody is willing to bring up issues and solve problems and, you know, all the good stuff kind of thing. And you say, well, I want to change the equipment. Well, how does that enhance the ability to create the culture? Right. It may not be bonus and it might not be the parking space or accolades, but how does it fit their vision? And each of those, uh, usually can be sorted out by their track record or history, what questions they ask, what, what emphasis they're bringing to it, and, and how they approach the decision-making they, they're making um, helps you suss out where it goes. So if, if you really don't know, you got to be prepared to, to pivot to what is underlying their motivation pretty quickly. Because you just can't go in and say it's going to reduce failure rate. It almost never works. Unless that result of reducing the failure rate fits with what they need. Love it. Love it. Love it. Now, Fred, it's about time to get you out of here so you can go to your wine tasting. So do you have anything to plug? Like obviously people listening, they should go check out your website, ascendoreliability.com. Do you have anything else to plug? No, I'm trying to focus. Um, I actually haven't written a no MTBF article in a, in a probably a year. I should probably write some more there. Um, no, I'm, I'm actively working on uh, site redesign, and we have, I don't know, it's over 1,700 articles, um, and we have over 1,000 podcasts in the network, and I think we're up six or seven shows that are active on the network. Uh, there's webinars, there's all kinds of resources, all kinds of good stuff. The, 
the problem I've been hearing more and more about is that you got all this great content, but I don't, I have two problems. People tell me there's two problems. One is I don't know what's new, right? It, and so the email newsletter is the best way to, it's a weekly message of email listing everything that's new on the site that week. And then the um, second problem is, is, well, if I want to go in deep on something, the search engine gives me like five pages full of article, webinars, and podcast results. But it's not easy for me just on titles to, where do I go? What are the best articles? Where, what's my next read? So we're going back through this catalog of material, trying to sort out how do we curate the best of, and then second, if you really want to go in deep, what's the process? Where, how do you find the, this material that's deeper in the archives? Uh, it's all still good stuff. FMEAs haven't changed all that much, but with 80 articles that relate to FMEAs, which of the five that I really should read next? And the complexity comes in is that some people are just getting started and some people are advanced. So how do you get them the right articles at the right time? And so we're, we're struggling with that a little bit in the redesign, but uh, making progress. So hopefully that's coming out soon. So stay on the newsletter and let me know what's working or not working. And that'll help us get the design right. That, that's my plug. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you're listening, go to sendoreliability.com, sign up for the newsletter. And if you have any ideas for how to help Fred out with, with all of that, just shoot him an email or on LinkedIn, you can message him. He'll be tagged in the post. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> It'd be good. Yeah. And uh, have fun with your upcoming interview with the CFO. I got to make sure I track that one down and listen to it. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that, that one hey, will be... We sp- Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, weren't we supposed to talk about Weibull analysis? I had my graph paper all ready to go and everything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that happened. this has happened to us twice now. So, you know, we'll have to have you back on to, to talk Weibull next time. Okay, yeah, I'd be glad to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no. That, <laughs> yeah, it was a good discussion. enjoyed it, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the fun of the podcast, right? Is is you can have these talks and get going on on different topics and see where you end up. So I, I always I always enjoy it. All right, me too. I always enjoy talking to you, Rob. So look forward to our next discussion. Yeah, me too. I appreciate you coming on, Fred, and and everyone who's listening. I appreciate you listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. We took a little detour, but we'll we'll get into the nuts and bolts of Weibull math next time, and you know maybe you can you can learn something about that some conditional probability and all that fun stuff. Um, Yeah, so if you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform and go to AscendoReliability.com and sign up for the weekly reliability newsletter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.